Happy Easter, everyone. Happy Easter. Great to have you here. My name's John, and I'm part of the team here who works in New Community Church. And I just want to echo the sentiments that Ding's brought. If it's your first time with us, we're so, so pleased to have you here. We just want you to feel at home, to have a great evening, and love to get to know you some more. All right, I want to start off with a question, and the question is this. Who here loved history in school? Who here loved it? Who loved it in school? Okay, we've got a few, we've got a few. Okay, who here just hated history in school? Hated, yeah, of course. Did you like any subjects in school, Tony? PE, yeah, of course, yeah. Nice. (laughs) Exactly, I mean, you don't get to be a physical specimen like you, Tony, without a lot of exercise, so that makes sense. I'm going to start off with a bit of a history quiz for you. I studied history at university, so as you can imagine, I do like my history. Um, and uh, so I've got a bit of a question. Don't worry, you don't have to share your answer. There's no grades or anything like that, so no pressure. And the question is this. What was the most significant moment of the past 100 years? What was the most significant moment in world history in the past 100 years? Maybe you think uh, Pearl Harbor kind of kicked off the United States' entrance into World War II. Maybe you think 9-11, massive event, shaped world history. Maybe um, the ending of the Second World War or the assassination of Martin Luther King. Lots of different uh, events that you could point to, equally uh, arguable for why they're so influential. But what about this? What was the most influential, significant moment of the past 3,000 years? Bit of a harder question. What moment shaped history more than any other in the past 3,000 years? Now again, you could argue it from different perspectives, but stepping back from it objectively, I think you'd have a very strong case to say that the most significant moment that happened in the last few thousand years was a few-day period a couple thousand years ago when Jesus died and it's claimed he rose again. When you look at the trajectory of human history since then, how much things have been shaped because of those few days, it's pretty convincing that those would be the most significant moments, the most significant times in the past few thousand years. Now, the debate isn't about whether Jesus died and rose again. That's pretty uh, conclusive amongst historians. There's no serious historian who's debating, did Jesus live? Did he die? No, that's that's a a set uh, conclusion. The debate is around whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. That's the the big uh, controversial point. Now, many of us here will have different opinions on that. Some will believe he did, and others will think he didn't. But the problem you face if you're trying to argue that Jesus didn't rise from the dead is that there's no body. It's one of the biggest uh, problems in trying to argue that case, is that there's no body. Now, if uh, there was a body for Jesus, then it would completely undermine the whole argument of his resurrection. So, for example, in uh, Islam, there is no claim that, uh, you know, Muhammad has uh, rise from the dead. If you want to visit his uh, grave site, you can go to Medina in Saudi Arabia, as millions of Muslims do. But for Jesus, there's no body. And that is a real issue. And it has been since the day he died and the claims about his resurrection were made. See, it was a big deal for the Romans, the political power at the time. Why? Because they were desperate to suppress the message of Jesus and his followers. So it's in their best interest to keep him dead and buried, secure in the grave. 
And it was a massive deal for the religious leaders at the time who'd rejected his message. And if they could provide Jesus' body, it would be their kind of, aha, trump card moment. Everything he said about himself was a lie. But the problem is, there's no body. And it's not a surprise. There's no wonder that this is a big deal. Because if Jesus did rise from the grave, if he did come back to life, then it changes everything. As we heard in the worship time, this isn't a kind of insignificant moment. It's not, it's not one of those things in history that you can kind of sit on the fence about. You can't kind of say, well, yeah, that's really cool, actually. I like, I like that Jesus rose from the dead. That, that's nice. That was, that was, yeah, that was, yeah, that was a pretty significant moment. Yeah, that was cool. No, no, no. It either happened and it changes everything, or it didn't happen and Christians should be uh, despised as those who are producing a message that is completely undermined, a fraud, and should be completely rejected. There's no middle ground with the resurrection. And as someone who studied it as, uh, as a real kind of um, person who enjoys looking at history and enjoys studying theology... For me, having looked at the evidence, I found it completely convincing. For me, it's compelling. And I'd encourage you to study it for yourself. To not just take my word for it, to go and to think it through, to study it, and to look at eyewitness accounts. See, as a historian, you know that a reliable evidence can be found when you look at different pieces of evidence and sources, and eyewitness testimony is huge. And there's lots of different accounts of Jesus' resurrection. We're going to look at the account from John, one of the eyewitnesses at the time. And we're going to look at how two different people responded to the resurrection. And through that, we'll be able to see the impact which the resurrection has. So we're going to be reading in John chapter 20 and 21, if you've got your Bibles with you. If not, the words will be up on the screen. So first of all, we're going to be looking at Thomas. Thomas. Now, do you have any of those friends who keep bringing up that one time you did that stupid thing? Do you know what I mean? You have those friends I'm talking about, like you made that one little mistake, that one little slip up, and they just keep making jokes about it. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever had that? Like they give you nicknames based around that thing you did, like they call you Grumpy Tim or Clumsy Catherine or Johnny Brown Pants. I mean, you just can't kind of let go of these things that happen one time, okay? I mean, that's obviously a hypothetical one, that last one that didn't happen to me in Scouts. And I haven't needed lots of therapy to overcome that trauma. So we're going to be talking about Thomas. And Thomas did one infamous thing that fraternity has earned him a nickname. And what nickname was that? Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. And so we're going to look at the story that earned him the nickname. And the background to this story is that Jesus has already appeared to his disciples once. But in the biggest kind of mistake ever, Thomas has ended up somewhere else, whether he's gone out for a meal with some friends or he just had a sick day or whatever. He missed this crazy moment where the resurrected Jesus had appeared to the disciples. And we read what happens next in John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, "Um, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
He's pretty convinced that this isn't legit. So then what happens? Eight days later, just notice that for a second. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas this time was with them. Although the doors, doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So here's the key moment. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Thomas doubts. And it's easy for us to kind of look at doubting Thomas and say, wow, come on, man, you should have just believed what your mates told you about Jesus. But I think we give him a bit of a hard time. I mean, can you imagine you have seen Jesus on the cross executed by the expert executioners, the Romans. They didn't make mistakes. This wasn't some sham execution. He saw the spear be pierced into Jesus' side and the blood and water pouring out. He saw Jesus die. And then the disciples come to him and say, he's alive. Now you might think, oh, I, I definitely believe everything my friends have to say. But I know for me, I might need a little bit more convincing than that. So it's easy for us to distance ourselves where I think actually many of us more can relate to Thomas than we'd like to admit. The next thing, and this is why I tried to point this out when we read it, is it says eight days passed. This isn't like later that day, no, over a week had passed since Jesus first appeared. Now can you imagine what it must have been like for Thomas during those days? All of his mates are there celebrating Jesus is risen. We saw him. This is amazing. This is so cool. I love it. Jesus is alive. And Thomas would be that guy over on the side who's just like, like, how would you feel in that moment if you were Thomas? Have you ever been in that situation where it feels like all of your friends believe something and you just have, you're not on the same page with that? It's such an isolating experience, isn't it? Some of you are sat in this room like right now thinking, yep, I'm feeling it right now. All these people, freedom is in the name of Jesus. And I'm like, I ain't singing, I don't believe that. It can be quite an isolating experience. Thomas felt that. Eight days passed, this wasn't a short time. There would have been tensions. And then Jesus appears. And his response to Thomas tells us all we need to believe All we need to know about how Jesus responds to those who doubt him. First of all, we see the kindness of Jesus. I love this. When he comes into the room, he doesn't kind of just like march over to Thomas with like an agenda ready to go. He's like, okay, Thomas, first things first. He doesn't say, okay, so Thomas, remember like the times I said I was going to die and then come again. Remember all those miracles I did? Like how many people walk on water? How many, how many times did you turn water into wine? And here you are, to, you have the, the audacity to question what the disciples have said about me. No, Jesus doesn't do anything like that. Just, just sense the warmth in his words as he says, hey, come look at where the nails went. I'm, I'm not turning you away. I'm inviting you to me. 
you can come. You can see. I'm not going to reject you. Secondly, we see the blessing of faith. Jesus, at the end of the passage we read, said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's a bit of an upside down concept. Jesus is saying, the less you see, the more faith is needed. I mean, that's obvious, but the thing that's not obvious is Jesus is saying, that's a blessing. It's a blessing to need faith. I don't think we're that comfortable with that. I know for many of us, I have a lot of friends who say this. They say, I believe if only I saw a miracle. If I, if I could just see the supernatural with my own eyes, then I believe. Yeah, yeah, of course. The truth is, there's no guarantee that seeing will lead you to faith. Jesus, have a think about this. Jesus performed countless miracles in, in, in front of thousands of people, and yet many of them never believed. You say, if I just saw that miracle, I believe. No, many don't. I have one of my close friends, and I'm sure maybe you have experience like this too, who has been supernaturally healed by Jesus herself and doesn't believe in him. And says, well, I, I can't really line that up, but... And we have this idea that if we just saw, we believe. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus loved to perform miracles. I mean, read any of the accounts of his life. Wherever he goes, he seems to be performing miracles. Ironically, unless people demand them from him to believe. He loves to perform miracles as a sign to him. However, what he's saying in this passage is that when you don't see and you're forced to choose to believe despite not having all your answers and all your certainty, when you still choose to have faith in him, you're blessed. Now, if you're someone here tonight who's saying, you know, I really struggle with doubts and questions and I, I, I just really struggle to have that certainty. But I want to choose to put my faith in Jesus nonetheless. Jesus is saying, you're blessed. You're not an outsider. You're not a second-rate Christian. You're blessed and he invites you to come to him. He says, bring your questions, come to me, Some, come see my scars. So what impact did the resurrected Jesus have on Thomas? Massive one. Thomas was someone who, with the other disciples, had run. When the going got tough with Jesus and everything starts kicking off, he was cowardly. He legged it. He abandoned Jesus. He was full of doubt, as we've read. Yet when he encounters the resurrected Jesus, he becomes this bold proclaimer of the good news. The best we know historically about Thomas is that he ended up going to India as a missionary to share the good news of what he'd seen, to share what he'd seen in Jesus. And Thomas gave everything to preach this message in very hostile lands. In fact, so much so, he gave his life. He was killed for his message that Jesus is alive. Now this, if we just want to step back into the debate about the resurrection, again, if you're into history like me, this for me is one of the most convincing and compelling arguments for the resurrection. See, lots of people, again, I've been with friends and discussions, one of the common things people say is, I don't believe in the resurrection, I believe that his disciples made it up to gain power and wealth and influence. Very common argument. 
However, when you studied what actually happened to the disciples, you realized that they definitely didn't get wealthy or have, you know, some like amazing, long, comfortable lives. In fact, almost all of Jesus' disciples were executed. They gave their life for it. Now, if you're coming up with a sham and a hoax of something, like it's April Fool's today, right? Like if you're coming up with a joke about something, if someone says to you, all right, okay, okay, I know you've been saying this whole thing, but just tell me the truth. And if you don't, if you keep keeping up this sham, this hoax about Jesus being risen from the dead, we are going to kill you. When the axe is pressed against your neck, in that moment, if you've made it up with a few mates, that's the moment where you're like, hey, 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 no, 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 we did make it up, we did, we did. Yet every single one of these people who witnessed and made up the resurrection gave their life because it was true. They saw it with their own eyes. You don't give up your life for a lie. They saw it and they're willing to give everything for it. Thomas's experience of the resurrected Jesus shows that if you're someone with questions and doubts, you can come to Jesus, know his kindness towards you, and then he's going to give you a purpose. He's going to give you a message. If you're someone who's timid, he's going to give you boldness and courage. Next up, Peter. I think he's got to be up there with one of my favorite people just ever to read about. This guy, if you've ever studied the life of Peter, you know that Peter, the disciple of Jesus, just had a mad life. Like, his life was crazy. Here's just a kind of like highlights reel. Like, if they're doing a montage of Peter's life, this is some of the things you might see in there. So first of all, Jesus calls him. He's a fisherman. He calls him to follow him. And Peter just leaves everything. He just gives it up. You know, for some of us, it's like, oh, should I become a Christian? Like, um, they said last week James preached about giving 10% of my money. And uh, someone said about, you know, I might have to think differently about relationships and these sorts of things. Ah, Peter's just like, I'm giving up my business, my livelihood. I'm going to give everything to Jesus. This is a bit of Peter. Next, Jesus is walking on water towards the disciples in a boat. And all the disciples are like, what is going on? This is... We haven't seen this one before. And Jesus is like, hey, come hang out on the water. And the disciples are like, nah, nah. And Peter is like, let's go. He's just like jumping out on the water, walks towards Jesus. Like, it's amazing. Yeah, he starts sinking because he doubted, but he was the one who got out the boat. Everyone else stayed behind, but Peter went for it. Then there's um, a moment where, uh, this is great. So, um, Jesus is having this like, really sensitive moment where he's telling his disciples um, that he's going to die. He's like, soon I'm going I'm to be leaving you because I'm going to be uh, killed. And Peter's like, hey, Jesus, come with me. And he, take, he takes Jesus, God, on earth aside and has a little words with him. He's like, you, you're not going to die, Jesus. Like, don't say that. This is to God on earth. Peter's like telling him off. And Jesus literally responds, I love it. Get behind me, Satan. He's like, you're talking like the devil. Like, why are you questioning this? That's Peter. When Jesus is getting, uh, is, has his disciples together and he's washing their feet, Peter's like, no, 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 you're not going to wash my feet. You can wash uh, John's or whoever, but not mine. No, no, no. And then Jesus is like, you've missed the point. I need to wash your feet to show you about service. And he's like, sweet. He's like, okay, give me the full body treatment. Like, I'll take it all. Go for it. And Jesus said, no, you've completely missed the point again. Then when Jesus is being arrested in the garden, 
and all the soldiers come to him. Jesus, bear in mind, he's talked about, you know, turn the other cheek and, you know, love your enemy. Peter takes out a sword and just chops off some guy's ear. I mean, I don't know what he thought that was going to achieve in the moment. Like, like oh, wow, we better leg it. He chops off the and Jesus oh, and puts his hand on the guy's ear, heals it. And then a bit before that, Jesus sends all the disciples, you know, someone here is going to betray me. And Peter's like, I would never betray you, Jesus. Never, never, never. Yeah, the others might, but not me. And he becomes one of Jesus' closest friends. The three closest friends Jesus had, Peter's one of them, with James and John. And when it comes to the crunch, when it came to the time it really mattered, Peter infamously denies Jesus three times. And he talked a lot of talk, but in the moment when Jesus is most vulnerable, Peter denies him. Not once, not twice, but three times. And there's this slightly harrowing um, verse part of the Bible where it talks about how after the third time Peter denies him, the cock crows and then he sees Jesus looking at him. I mean, can you imagine that moment? Peter's just abandoned Jesus in his time of need. He's, he's devastated. I mean, obviously, can you imagine that, that feeling, having promised all this and talked all this, and then when it counted, you turned your back on Jesus. And he, it says he, he runs away and weeps bitterly. Can you relate to a, a time in your life where you've done something that you just know was wrong and you just feel that deep weight of, I can't believe I've just done that do you carry shame from your past I know a lot of people who say I can I was chanting recently I I could never follow God because of what I've done like I know obviously John for you you've had a pretty easy life but you know kind of what I've done like I I can't I mean I've just I've gone too far I know there's people in this room who are carrying the weight of the past, things that haunt them and bring them shame, things that you could never or feel like you could never tell someone about. Peter's turned his back on Jesus. And I know there's people who, many people who turn their back on Jesus, walk away. There's people in this room who, whether knowingly or subconsciously, are starting to walk away from Jesus. Others who know they have and are trying to walk back. And in Peter, we're going to find out how Jesus responds to those who turn their back on him. What will Jesus do to someone who's abandoned him in his darkest hour? Well, we find out. It says, a short time after the resurrection, the disciples were fishing. And on the shore, they see Jesus. And in true Peter form, they're all like trying to pull in this huge horde of net. And he just jumps in the sea and just ditches the fish and swims to the shore. And then it says, when the other disciples had arrived, they brought the fish. And I love this. I love the first thing that Jesus does. This is resurrected Jesus. It says, he cooked them breakfast. 
Now, I think we have this idea of like Jesus before he rose from the dead was pretty like down to earth. But then risen Jesus is almost like floats about a few feet off the ground and kind of speaks in these and vows and has this like glowing like white cloak or something like that. And he's just a little bit weird. Like, yeah, he's God, but he's not too relatable. I love that the first thing he does is cook them breakfast. He's not like, oh, I'm resurrected Jesus now, so bow to me for about 10 minutes and then we'll have our little chat. Or I'm resurrected Jesus now, so we better do the big strategy meeting about how you're going to take my message. He's like, hey, friends, let's have breakfast for a bit. He's still relatable and he's still serving them, which is mad. After all he's done, you could be like, hey, do you want to do the cooking this time? Nah. He serves me. I love that. I love that. That's not even related to anything I'm saying. I just, I love that bit too much to leave out. But then the key bit comes. So after he'd done breakfast, he, um, he says to Peter, he's like, oh, Peter, can we, um, can we go for a little walk? We need to have a chat, don't we? Now, I hate that moment. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in that moment, like, where at work, when your boss is like, you get the, like, email or whatever, like, hey, we need to have that meeting tomorrow. Now, I'm a worst-case scenario guy. I'm, like, thinking about everything, like, what's he going to say? And it's horrible. Maybe you've had that moment with um, a spouse or a loved one or a friend where they're like, we need to talk. <laughs> now, you know what that, uh, that moment feels like. And it's, like, it's bad enough if you don't know what you've done, but when you know you've messed up, it's ten times worse. Like it's only going to be bad. So Jesus says, all right, Peter, let's, um, let's have the chat then. So they walk, walk down the beach together when they're out of earshot of the other disciples and, and Jesus stops and looks at Peter. And here's what we find out what Jesus does to those who turn his back on him. I read in John 21 verse 15, he says this, Simon, that's Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Okay, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Pete was grieved because he'd said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now again, look at what happened. Look at what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't pull Peter aside and say, hey, look, Remember that little conversation where you said you never betray me? And I said you would, and you're like, nah, nah. Hmm. Remember that time where you denied me? Oh, yeah, and the second time, and the third time. He's like, okay, well, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to let it go as long as you make it up to me. Bow down right now and tell me you'll never do it again. He doesn't say to him, all right. Because I'm God and I believe in forgiveness, you know, I taught all that. I will forgive you, but don't go thinking you can be used by me anymore. Like, you're, you're used good. People know what you did. The story's out. How can I put you in a position of leadership when everything you've done is public now? Uh, forgiveness, but you're, you're behind the scenes from now on. Now, what does Jesus say to him? He says, do you love me? 
Do you love me? Do you love me? He's saying, I want your heart. I want your heart. I want your heart. That's the qualification. He's saying, what's Jesus looking for with you? What does he want from you? What, what is he asking from you? He's saying this. One thing. I want your heart. That's the qualification. You're saying, I really want to be used by God in a mighty way. What, what do I need to do? Like, what, what's the course? What's the, what's the kind of the rings I need to jump through? And God's saying this. I want your heart. And then I can use you. You can feed my sheep. And repeats this three times to mirror the denials. Like, I, I like that he does it. Peter kind of takes a while to get used to what, what's going on. But Jesus does it three times to say, everything you did is forgiven. It's not like, you know, in a few weeks when you mess up again, I'll remind you of this. Every wrong action you've done, forgiven, covered by my blood. What about you? Were you once closer with God? Maybe you've started to drift. For some, that, that's just a, a subtle thing. You know, it hasn't happened intentionally, but even tonight as we were worshipping and singing, you saw these people getting excited and you thought, I used to be like that. I feel like I've, I've lost it a little bit. Maybe if it's been a more intentional thing, you've even maybe kept coming to church, but you've made a conscious decision to turn a blind eye to certain things in your life that you know aren't right. I'm kind of almost done with this God thing. Maybe you've messed up, and when I was talking about the shame from your past, you feel the weight of not just maybe things in the past, but things that have happened more recently. Well, what we learn about Peter, and what we learn about us, and what we learn about Jesus, is that he specializes in using the messed up, and the broken, and the lost. He specializes in welcoming the prodigal's home. There's no one too far, there's no grievance too deep that Jesus isn't there with his open arms saying, do you love me? Well, I can use you. Let's move forward. He specializes in those who have a past and want to give him their heart. And he's like, perfect, that's just what I need. I want to use you. The story of Peter shows the amazing grace of God. It shows that you no longer need to live in shame. Why? Because what you did doesn't really matter. Like it's, hey, it's all good. We all mess up. No. What you've done, what we've done, the wrong, the sin in our lives massive, matters massively. It's not that God's like, hey, no big deal. Hey, you know, these things happen. No, 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 no. God doesn't turn a blind eye to things. He is a just God, rightly so. And the wrong things that you and I do deserve punishment. That's justice. However, God, rather than give us the punishment we deserve, he said, okay, because I love you, I'm going to come down and take the death sentence which you were given. I'm going to take every bit of the punishment that you deserve. Not just kind of part of it and then you better do your bit. No, he cancelled the record of wrong over your life, nailing it to the cross. He said, it is finished. There's no more work you have to do. You don't have to prove yourself to God anymore. Jesus took every wrong thing, every wrong action that you and I have done and now it is completely dealt with. Jesus says, come to me, receive my grace. 
Look to me. I can give you a future. I can give you a purpose. I have a plan for your life. And there's a question that comes from that today. It's the same question that came to Peter. And Jesus is simply saying, do you love me? Do you love me? There's an invitation for you right now tonight. Jesus is saying to you, do you love me? Do you want to give him your heart? And we've looked at the story of Peter and Thomas. But what's your story? What's your story? And I see elements of my own story in each of Peter and John's. Especially, sorry, Peter and Thomas. Especially Thomas, because I'm, I'm naturally a sceptical person. Like, I'm quite an analytical person. I don't like getting carried away with kind of the group mentality. I want to think things through. And I've doubted for large parts of my life. And the pivotal moment in my life came when I realised that I can no longer just sit on the fence about the resurrection. And if this thing actually happened, then it changes everything. If this is true, which the more I looked into it, the more I was convinced it was, if this is true, then it changes every element of my life, the way in which I view relationships, sex, money, career, what does success look like? What's important in life? See, now because of this, I have a completely different outlook on everything in life. See, I've got an eternal perspective. See, it's not just about having life. Jesus said, hey, well, I'm going to give you a good life for 10, 20, 30 years. Be a good person and then, you know, you'll die. But at least you were a moral person. No, no. Jesus is saying you have eternal life now, a home in heaven. So, of course, the way I view my money is different. Because I'm like, wow, okay, so how does how I view it now affect eternity? Or if Jesus is saying, you need to give up this thing until you die, I'm like, what's 50 years and like a 50 million and on and on? Yeah, of course, I have a completely different perspective. Of course, I'm going to be different than the people around me who don't believe this. Because Jesus' resurrection has changed everything. This isn't just a good moral teaching. This is a revolutionary idea that Jesus is saying, death is defeated. This isn't empty promises. This is an empty grave. Jesus is saying, I am risen, and if you believe in me, you can have life even when you die. That's the promise of the resurrection. So what about you? What does the resurrection mean in your story? Perhaps you're someone who has been kind of exploring faith. Amazing. So good. So many people in our society just switch off to the biggest questions in life. If you're exploring, amazing. There's an invitation from Jesus to you tonight. He's saying, come to me. Same thing he said to Thomas, come to me. Believe in me. Lay down the guilt and shame, whatever has barred you or held you back. Lay it down at the cross and receive resurrection life. And you don't have to earn your way into that. You don't have to kind of prove to Jesus you're good enough for that. You can do that tonight. With no prerequisites other than he's saying, give me everything. Give me your heart. You can know Jesus tonight. Best decision I ever made. Maybe for you, you say, you know, I'm someone who follows Jesus. But to be honest, I'm living like he hasn't been raised from the dead. You know, so the way in which I view my life, the way in which I, I get anxious about temporary things, the way in which I obsess over things that are, are, are temporary and 
the way in which I, I've lived isn't in, in line with what Jesus has done. I'm still carrying the, the shame of things that I know that he paid the price for, that he's dealt with. Well, you can know the freedom of the resurrection today. I think, I really felt stirred for this. I think there's some people here who feel shame over having doubted and wrestled with their faith. And you're so desperate to know more of Jesus and you want to know more, but you're wrestling and struggling and you feel so ashamed to tell people. And Jesus, again, the same thing he said to Thomas. Come to me. There's grace for you. You can know peace in him. I think for others, you're living a life where you don't really feel like you have much of a a purpose or message. Maybe for you it's just like, yeah, I believe in all this God stuff, but there's these kind of, I don't know, extra gifted individuals that do all the like talking about their faith or in church they're the kind of the ones who are always at the front or, you know, there's that person in small group, at, you know, in, in, in our community that they're always answering the questions. Like, that's great. I'll, I'll keep coming on Sundays, but I'm not really sure that God wants to use me a whole lot. And the story of Thomas and Peter is, it doesn't matter if you're young or old or male or female or introvert or extrovert, if you've got some squeaky clean past or an embarrassing, just crazy past, you can know a purpose and message from Jesus tonight. Because of the resurrection, you have a good news to share with people. You have a voice and your words have power. As we we heard in our worship time, the Holy Spirit has been given to us. The same spirit that gave Jesus the power to preach boldly, to heal the sick, and raised him from the dead. Isn't stuck in the pages of the Bible. It's now in you. It's in you. The power of the spirit is in you. Do you know that? Do you live like that? There's a chance again tonight to fix our eyes on the resurrection. The resurrection is the greatest moment in human history, most significant moment in humanity's story, and it can be the most significant moment in your story too.